0: Continue our study of the book of Psalms tonight, turning to Psalm 83. And so I'd invite you to turn with me there. Psalm 83, in many ways, picks up some of those themes, not only of Psalm 2, but we see certainly from Genesis 3 that resounding battle and conflict that continues to work through the ages the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And so as we hear that in the psalm, we're mindful then of our trust of our assurance, of that anointed that they deride, who is the one who sits at the Father's right hand. Our trust and confidence in one who will come to judge and whose name will be vindicated altogether. And so those are the themes we take up tonight in Psalm 83. So let's hear these words together. A prayer of God's people, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Hear now the word of the Lord. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalumna. Who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. "...that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth." Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come before this psalm that cries out to you, for you to be glorified, for your name to be defended and held high and exalted. Father, we pray that we believe that that is the truth, that that is what comes That everything here in the psalm comes true and will in your time and in your way for your glory. And Father, as we live in this life, in these days that are evil, where it seems perhaps in many ways that the church isn't victorious at all, but seems to be losing the fight. Father, we pray may this prayer be a reminder to us of our assurance and our comfort of our confidence. And may we be built up and encouraged together to a life of relationship with you and your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Children of God, called to be saints, what is your greatest treasure? The greatest, not just something little and piddly, but the greatest. Think about it. Because the first thing that probably popped into your mind is probably that thing. And I'm sure that that treasure is great and it's dear. Which means then that you've protected it, you care for it, and you cherish it. What's your greatest treasure? And I ask this because as our text says, we are the Lord's greatest, most valued treasure treasure. That is how he feels about us. It's why he's jealous for us. It's why he continues to act in love and compassion to us. We are his. It's the comfort of the elect spoken in his word. Deuteronomy 7.6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's your identity. That's what you are. That's who you are. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're his treasure. Do we know that? Do we take the time to think about it? He cares for us so much that he has done all things for us and our salvation. He says we are so known by him that we're engraved on his hands so much that he will never leave us or forsake us. He protects us and keeps us near unto himself. And while that's a great blessing to know and to slap on a bumper sticker or some other bit of home decor that we look at, Do we experience that comfort in real time? Is this operating for us? Do the truths of His promises and our identity in Him and our Savior Jesus Christ serve as our assurance now even in the midst of this present evil age? Because it's here where that disconnect is playing because of the way that the number of Christians speak of the sky falling. Look at what happens to the church. Look what's going on all around us. Look at what's happening in the world. Look at the decay. Look at the brazenness of sin. What's going to happen? Where are we going? What We get riled up in a hurry. We forget our promises. We forget our identity. Do we pray, not in reaction to these things that swirl around us, but in relationship to the God that we trust, that we wait upon? That we're so busy, often fretting and wondering, does God see, does He hear, is He active? Is He working now in these moments where we see our enemies emboldened in sin, when we see what's happening to the church, when we see what's happening to our church? Does God care? Does He know? He says we're his treasure, but is this how you're going to care for us? Does God care? Do you care, God, about how your word is dismissed and rejected? But what happens then? We stop praying. We focus on these things so much. And we give ourselves to human wisdom and our understanding of these things and what our solutions to them would be. That we don't pray in response in the trust and the assurance that we are his most prized possession. That his church, each and every member of it, are his treasured possession. And so what we hear in the words of Psalm 83 is a community lament There's still a pleading to God to make His will known among His people. But yet it never stops being a prayer that resolves in the trust that we need to be exhorted to. To remember who and what we are. Ensure promises of a faithful Savior who always keeps His word. And who will let no one snatch us from His hand. And so the people of God cry out to a covenant-keeping God to act according to His promises made to His treasured ones. That's what we want to look at tonight. The people of God cry out to a covenant-keeping God to act according to His promises made to us, made to His treasured ones. And so we take up this prayer, calling out to God for three things that are made plain in our text tonight. The first is this. Oh my God, be vocal. Be vocal. Speak, O oh Lord. We, we've already sang it together. Because typically our first comment when difficulties and persecutions come, when trials come upon us as individuals or our families or our church family, is that God is ignorant of our situation. That he's not working. That he stops speaking. That he's silent. But isn't the opposite true? Even in that moment, isn't he at work? In fact, he is working, which is why he ordains such circumstances in the first place. So we need to be crying out for God then to speak into those circumstances to care for us by opening our eyes and opening our hearts to His way, the way that is made plain in His Word. But yet really, even in this lament, that anxiety of a sort become, begins to come out. Verse 1, O oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O oh God. But He's not silent. He's never silent. He's never been silent. He is always speaking to us by his word. He is always caring for his people by way of the same. It's the promise of Isaiah 62 verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. He hasn't stopped proclaiming the gospel. As much as we won't hear it at times, as much as the world won't hear it, He hasn't stopped speaking. We stop listening. We stop our ears, the world stops its ears, and God is still speaking. He's always speaking. He's always bringing about His plan for us and for His glory. Are we listening? Are we willing to hear in that moment what we're saying and the better way of what He says? Do we trust that and are we quick to assert that trust resting in every promise spoken to us and in us and over us and for us? It's the power of, of reading Psalm 46. 10 and 11, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Because the Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. This is what he keeps speaking to us. This is what he keeps speaking to his church. And yet we still come to him and say, Yeah, but show me. Do the thing. Do the thing. When is it going to happen? Why haven't you done it yet? Did you see what happened over there? Do you know what? We asked that he would see an act. Verse 2, for behold, God, please look and hear. But when are we going to stop to hear him? When are we going to stop to listen? And yet, notice the development that the psalmist, in bringing God's people through this prayer, brings them. Because already between verse 1 and verse 2 we see growth. Because look at the words that he uses. For behold, right? It isn't about us, or ours, or my. Instead it's a plea for the Lord to be vocal for the sake of what? His name, His cause, His glory, His people. And so if we're hearing that, if we know that, then the way that we pray comes differently because it stops being about us and our experience and it starts about experience relationship with Him. That becomes the point of this moment, not the heart and the struggle in and of itself, but of what it does and what it works in terms of relationship with a holy God. And so this cry for him to deal with his enemies, yes, in that way is a prayer to deal with ours. His enemies are our enemies. But he's saying, in attacking us, they're attacking you. Your enemies make an uproar. Those you hate, you have raised their head, who hate you have raised their heads compared to the seeming silence of the Lord. And here's that working of trying to understand that. God, the noise of the world is noisy. (laughs) The threats, the shouts, the sin, the brazenness of all of the things that come out of their mouths, that's loud. So don't be silent. And what is the noise the nations make? The noise they bring before God and His people? It is nothing but the dismissing of His word, his, of His person, of His authority. It's bitterness and hate directed towards Him and towards His people in the utmost of prideful arrogance. That's what we're hearing. That's what we see. But are we hearing the rest? Is the word, for lack of a better example, a a better kind of noise-canceling headphone? Where we're finally able to just rest and say, yeah, but what does God speak right now? They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together. We heard it and sang it in the words of Psalm 2. The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Get rid of God. Get rid of His Word. Get rid of your standards. Get rid of your morality. No. They attack God in every way, seeking to cast off His authority, and they direct their attacks against whom? They don't believe God exists anymore. So the next best thing is us. They address their attacks against your treasured ones. And so it amplifies the pleading, doesn't it? God, if we're so dear to you, if we are your treasure, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, bought at a great price, be vocal. Speak up for us. Be noisier in the right way. Speak your deliverance. Speak your gospel. But he already has. And so the problem isn't God. The problem's us. Because we don't speak it. And we don't speak truth to each other. And we don't speak boldly the word to the world. What might they think? What might they... What if we were louder? What if we were prouder? What if we were so knowing who and what we are and what God has done to have us and what He's spoken into us and desires us to speak? You see, in speaking of who we are this way, we're making a shared statement of what? Our hope, our security, our identity. And that doesn't change no matter what is swirling around us or encircling us. No matter what the world does to us. It's why the apostle says, what can man do to me? We're yours. We're your treasured possession. We are your special people. We are most precious to you. We're that which you keep. And the overtone of this word is like hidden treasure. Like kids, that X marks the spot and the pirates don't want anybody to find it. Here is the Father saying, "You're mine. All those gold doubloons, you're mine." And I'm not going to let it go. And nobody else is going to get it. You're mine. Do we say that enough, God, I am your special possession. I am one of your people. I'm your priceless treasure. In the midst of the noise, let that serve as your assurance that God has spoken and is speaking concerning who you are and what you always will be. And that truth then will allow you to pray and trust no matter what the world may say or plan. Verse 4, they say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. It's just a threat. That's all that this is. And if we give any more credence to it than that, then we have wholly misplaced our trust. And yet in this way, the truth of the mother promise of Genesis 3.15, it keeps unfolding itself. There we see that conflict again and again and again. And yet it's as though we in the church are like, yeah, but why do we have to deal with that? I mean, God, you've you've won victory. Christ, snakehead crusher. Like, we have, so why the skirmishes? Why the noise? Why the struggle? Are we really that dense concerning the reality that we live in? Or maybe it's worse than that because we no longer recognize the signs or the sides as, as distinctly as we used to. I mean, we can figure out the the difference between green and the two colors that make green. But we can't figure out the difference between the church and the world. The world is not our friend. Why do we keep acting like they should be? Those given to sin into the kingdom of darkness are not our allies. Their stands are diametrically opposed to the, to the Lords. That's why we're to speak and to bring the gospel to them. They're dead, lost, without hope in the world. That's why we don't become friends with the world, but we call them to repentance and faith. James 4:4: 4, 4, "You adulterous people. That's a very different description than your treasured possession. It's crazy different. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't we get it? The Lord has spoken what this reality is. Yeah, he's won the war. The victory is his. It's finished. But, but there's still battle and toil and struggle. The world desires the complete annihilation of the people of the Lord. Those who bear the name of the Lord. Who hold tightly to all of his promises. And you're like, yeah, but it's way worse now. Nope. Are you going to say that to Abel? Are you going to say that to Israel? Are you going to say that throughout all of redemptive history? This has always been the way. Verse 5, for they conspire with one accord. It's one purpose of the world from the very beginning of sin to the last day where sin will be no more. Against you they make a covenant. That world makes an agreement in this way. But look who it is. Verse 6: the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. And what comes out here is how close to that family of God they are. Like when we talk about the world, we're thinking about people that live way far away from us in some other place. Edom are the descendants of Esau, whom the Lord hated, Ishmaelites, the half brother of Isaac, who was given promise, but not the son of promise. Moab and Amnon are the children of Lot, the Hagrites, the descendants of Hagar, Gable, a despised people to the south, Philistia and Tyre, the people from the coast, and Asher or Assyria was the major superpower of the day. Does the world live here in West Olive? In Zealand in Hudsonville, in Allendale? Are those sides seen in our families and extended families? You see, here is a listing of the most despised enemies of Israel throughout our history. But more, it speaks to the geography of the enemy. The people of God are and will be attacked and despised from every direction from close, from far, from everywhere. But instead of that leading us to despair, it needs to lead us to trust. Driven again to trust in the Lord who speaks because those crises we face as His people, as His church, are nothing new. Yet we have comfort and hope in reality because we know the truth. It makes us bold in our confidence and trust that the Lord will care for us because we are his treasured possession. And so we have no reason to worry or to fear even as we walk in a world openly hostile toward God, his word, and his people. For the Lord is still speaking today. In every word we hear, in every word we read, In every sermon that we hear, He is still speaking. He is still speaking by His Word and Spirit and He will never be silent. So instead of asking the world to hear that, will you? Will we? Giving ourselves to such hearing as we give our trust to Him in another petition. Second leave in verses 9 to 12. Oh my God, be victorious. Because we can trust Not only because God speaks and keeps his word, but because he's always victorious. I mean, that's what we hate about people who always cheer for the team that always wins. We call them bandwagoners, right? Because they always win, no matter what they do. And it's annoying because they always win. There's nothing annoying about this. We always win. We always win as those found in Christ. His is the honor and the power and the glory forever. He is the sovereign. And so the trust, what a trust that we, those who belong to him as his treasured ones, can always trust that he can and will come to victoriously save us. That's always true. That should be our hope. It should be our trust. A trust that is not an unfounded or an unproven one. And so again, young people, I encourage you, look through your Bibles to see all of the ways that he has fought for his people when he commands them just to be silent, that they would see and wait upon the salvation of their God. And so we pray for him to be victorious because we know that he is. And his people pray on the basis of those victories. And so that's what we see unfolded in verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian. This may be an early reference to Numbers 31.7. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. But, but in keeping with the theme of, of this account in the psalm, it seems to refer to the victory of Judges 7. Of Gideon and the 300 who lapped from the brook like dogs, who rose up knowing that the Lord had given the host of Midian into their hands by way of his word a victory that was for the Lord and for Gideon. He was victorious. He upheld his word and was victorious for his cause and for the sake of the deliverance of his people. Due to them as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor and who became dung for the ground. Here's the victory of Judges 4, of Deborah and Barak when the Lord routed Sisera, and more, who ended him by the hand of Jael, the wife of Haber, and the work of a splitting headache. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and destroyed them. He always wins. Verse 11, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb, all their princes like Zabah and Zolumna. Another account of the deliverance worked by God through Gideon in Judges 7 and 8. And we could add victory after victory after victory after victory that the Lord has worked to deliver his people and keep them all together. Why? Because we're his treasured possession. He keeps his own. He accomplishes such victories in what way? By choosing the weak to destroy the strong. That when we're weak, he shows himself again and again to be a strong and kind Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, if we believe this and we rejoice in those victories, do we trust that he will continue to be victorious and continue to fight for us? Does that truth come out in the way that we speak about our current circumstances? Does it come out in the way that we speak to the world? Or maybe I just need to ask, do we believe it? Do we cry out to the Lord for deliverance on that kind of sure basis and promise? Because the world talks a lot of junk. They claim that they're going to conquer, that they're going to have what's promised to us who said, verse 12, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. But the Lord says, "Uh uh-uh. No way. The Lord rules, and the Lord reigns, and He wins. Psalm 132, 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. He's chosen His people. He's chosen His spoils. So why won't we trust Him? Why are we still worried that he's going to blow it in the fourth quarter? He's strong and able and willing to bring about the utmost victory for our good and for his glory. Are you praying out of that truth and assurance? For no matter how defeated you may feel, how down we might feel, how defeated it seems that the church and the people of God might be, We can assuredly trust that he has won the victory in the finished work and cry of Jesus. So let's live out of the reality of Christ's victory. Might we pray out of the reality in the promises that he always keeps? He's fought for us, he's fighting for us, he will keep us as his bride, as his treasured jewels forever. And it's why we're ultimately praying then for something even greater than victory. The third thing is this, my God, be vindicated. You see, what's asked for is that the Lord and his name and his promise would be shown in every way, in a completed way, to be true. To be fully yes and amen in Jesus. Oh Lord and my God, let your name be vindicated in the complete salvation of your chosen and in the judgment to those left in misery. You see, it's an all-encompassing cry for the mother promise to be completed in full. It's a cry for him to return and take us up and gather us to Himself as His precious jewels. But what comes first is judgment. Verse thirteen. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Because yeah, the roaring of the sinful nations is loud now, but it will be responded to in the promise of Isaiah seventeen thirteen. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee away, chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. They will be like chaff that the wind drives away, and the little that is left will be destroyed as well as by fire. Verse 14, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Here is the accounting of the full execution of God's wrath and power. Here is the full revelation of God's holy presence. And the nations are going to be brought before that on that awesome and awful day. Into the presence of God in fear and trembling unto a judgment that is sure to be. And that reality, too, should shape how we look at our world and how we pray because we know what we've been delivered from. And so, for us in this time, the already, not yet, what we give voice to actively in our prayers should be a right desire for their conversion because we know what's coming. We must fervently pray that the word of the Lord would be heard, that it would continue to be living and active, that it would change hearts and lives, and that it would bring sinners out of darkness into light. We pray in our day that in wrath God would remember mercy. But a day is coming. A dreadful day for those left in misery is coming, where they will be judged forever. And the Lord and His glory and His word of promise will be vindicated not just in His appearing, but in the shame and horror that that appearing will bring. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek Your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. That word here, shame, is mentioned three times. Fill them with shame Let them be put to shame. Let them perish in shame. What they wanted to bring on us in all of that noise will be brought upon them. But what will that shame lead them to? To the truth of verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And we hear that as a celebration of praise, and for us it is. But in that moment for them, there is no hope of salvation. That they will come before a holy God and know what was true and right. And there's no time left. says in Psalm 59 for the sin of their mouths the words of their lips let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter consume them in wrath consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth they will be utterly consumed and in it God will be vindicated he is certainly merciful today is the day of mercy mercy but he will be just. And that's true now and not just in the last day. And yet we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of God who took on flesh, becoming man to live and to die and rise again and ascend for us, that that complete victory would be worked that he is there seated on the right hand of the Father's throne until every enemy is put under his feet and the last enemy death is destroyed. And in that the name of the Lord will be vindicated in the keeping of every one of his promises. And so this truth and accounting of Jesus Christ comes before you in this prayer. Because if you know Christ and are found in Christ, and I pray that you do, this prayer is one of power and trust and assurance and great hope. But if you've not been found in Jesus Christ, you sit here tonight as his enemy. And judgment will come if you will not bow before him in repentance and faith. Jesus Christ alone is Savior and Lord and we must confess that salvation is found only in Him for it says in Philippians 2 therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will say it but after that, where are you going? Do not delay. Do not delay in bowing the knee. Do not delay in giving him all of your hope and trust and life because he will be vindicated in both salvation and in judgment. And so for those of you in Christ know that Jesus has prevailed and will prevail. His name and promises will be vindicated, it's sure to be. So respond in your praying and your living, rooted in the assurance that the Lord treasures you and that he will keep every last one of his promises to you in Christ. That you would pray, Lord, be faithful. Be faithful to who you are in holiness and in truth. And may we know together he is not silent. He proclaims his victory cry even now. And will be vindicated forever under the glory of his name. May he be our hope, our confidence, and our comfort. No matter what may come. No matter who may encircle us. in the assurance that we're his treasured ones. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word in all of its power, in all of its beauty and splendor, and how the clarion call of your word cuts through the noise. And it cuts through the sinful calluses we place over our ears, and it divides even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, Father, lay us plain before you tonight. That, Father, we would not be as enamored with the noise of this world as we are with the truth of the gospel of your Son. That, Father, our hope would be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That, Father, we know and trust, looking forward to a day where every promise will be fulfilled and your name vindicated forever. And so, Lord, in this already and not yet, we pray, make us fervent in proclaiming the gospel. Let us love you and love others enough to proclaim it. No matter what may come. No matter what the world may do to us. Because the stakes are too high for us to be silent. The stakes are too awesome for us to be apathetic. And so, Lord, we pray, find us faithful. Faithful not because of us, but because of you that our prayer would not be about us, but you, your glory, your majesty, your power, your name. And so, Father, as those granted that name, we pray, may we live according to it. To your name's honor and glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.